in the Nuba Mountains in Sudan, a church leader named Morris wanted to give a powerful picture of what Jesus has done for us. The church leader's daughter had been attacked by their neighbor. The neighbor was found guilty and locked up because of a fine he couldn't pay. Brad Phillips tells us the amazing story. And Morris, instead of delighting in the judgment against his neighbor, saw an opportunity for the gospel. And he talked to his daughter and he said, you know, we have this opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ. I can pay that fine if you'll let me. Jesus never promised his followers an easy path. In fact, he told his disciples that the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help right now on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. Welcome again to the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. My name is Todd Nettleton. We're in the studio this week with Brad Phillips. He has served for how long, Brad? Two decades? The people of Sudan? It's about two decades. Wow. Brad Phillips helps Voice of the Martyrs serve the Christians and others in Sudan. Brad, welcome back, because I know you've been here before. Welcome back to Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Todd, it's great to see you. Great to be with you. Several years ago, we kind of celebrated the birth of a new nation, South Sudan. Sudan split into two. South Sudan promised religious freedom, promised great things for Christians. What's the reality now? All of Sudan, a bit of it is a sad story. If you look from the political side, Africa's largest country Geographically, Sudan was split into two, as you said, back in 2011 when the South voted for independence. And at that time, I think everyone was taking bets on which of the two Sudans were going to collapse first, because they both have a lot of economic, political, cultural, and religious turmoil. They're both incredible amount of corruption and financial mismanagement. And it looks like South Sudan won that bet. They went back to war in 2013. Um, A lot of the groups that were fighting each other were armed and supported by the regime in Khartoum, which was happy to see their neighbor have more problems. And recently, a new political settlement that was orchestrated by Khartoum with the warring factions in South Sudan has raised even more questions about the future for for South Sudan. One of the things that's going to affect us as a ministry where VOM is serving in the Nuba Mountains is the Nuba Mountains is actually in southern Kordofan state in North Sudan, and it's the longest boundary between North and South Sudan. And as part of this political arrangement, the parties in South Sudan are basically allowing the Khartoum government to be invited in to police that border, which which could cause great jeopardy for believers and and everyone in in the Nuba Mountains, as well as the work that we're doing there. And I want to talk about that work, because you mentioned uh, the place where a lot of the work that Voice of the Martyrs is supporting is in northern Sudan. That's right. Tell me about what that means for you and, and for your team as you go to serve those Christians. 
Well, it's really hard when you're following the two Sudans to really figure out what's going on in the news. There's so much confusion. <laughs> if and if they ever make the news here it, in the U.S. If, the, if it reaches the news over here. And most of the news doesn't look so good. But I believe that some of the most exciting and, and good news coming out of Sudan is within that community of Nuba. And the Nuba people represent, I believe, the largest community of Christians in an officially Islamic state. More than 2 million Nuba out of 5 million Nuba identify as followers of Jesus Christ. And that's one of the reasons why they've been the target of some of the most extreme and vicious persecution over the last 60 years, since uh, really since 1955. And I, and I want to hit on what you said. We're talking about the Nuba people we're talking about 2 million, as many as 2 million who identify themselves as Christians. And I'm reminded of something Pastor Hassan said just a few weeks ago here. Pastor Hassan, a pastor who spent time in prison in Sudan, talked about the fact that Omar al-Bashir, who is the president of Sudan, he is also an indicted war criminal. And they actually announced there's no more Christians in Sudan. You know, all the Christians yeah. have left. They've gone to South Sudan. We don't have any Christians left. That's right. And here you say two million. That's right. Well, of course, it was one of many lies that Bashir has told. And it's noteworthy that Pastor Hassan is a Nuba believer. And the church that is very active in making a difference in Khartoum and in other parts of northern Sudan outside of the Nuba Mountains are predominantly ethnic Nubas like Pastor Hassan. When the South voted in its referendum to separate from the North, the response of Omar al-Bashir, apart from the disappointment, was to announce to his constituents, the, the is Islamic brothers, the, the radical Islamists in northern Sudan, that yes, we're, we're going to let go, uh, we're going to keep the agreement and let go of South Sudan, but we're not going to let anybody else go. And so he began to increase different campaigns and wars and, and persecutions that were going on before in places like Darfur, the Blue Nile region, and southern Kordofan's Nuba Mountains. And within the context of trying to enforce and impose this twin policy of Arabization and Islamization, within the context of trying to impose Sharia law, and that really is at its core of what the fighting is about in Sudan. You have a extremist Islamic government that came to power by coup d'etat. When they came to power in 1989, they declared their quote-unquote civilization project, the goal of which was to establish the first Islamic caliphate. This is their agenda and the way Omar al-Bashir is able to hold on to power is to continue to uh, cultivate his relationship with that core constituency, that core radical Islamist movement in northern Sudan. In many ways, as you talk about a caliphate, that Sudanese regime was ISIS before ISIS. I mean, they were seeking the same goals that ISIS has sought. Sure. The main cleric behind the National Islamic Front, which is now the National Congress Party, who passed away recently, Hassan el-Tarabi, who's known as the god, sort of the godfather of the Islamic movement, has referred to the National Islamic Front as the, the stepchild of the Muslim Brotherhood. Wow. And so, yeah, this is, this is uh, 
at their core what they're all about. It's an Islamo-fascist regime. Um, they have a secret police, which uh, VOM listeners are familiar with because of Peter's story and Hassan's story, which is the, the NSIS. And so all of the things that we take for granted here in America, for example, that are enshrined of our Bill of Rights, the freedom of association, freedom of the press, freedom of worship, don't exist. The varying degrees of freedom that may be advertised in the newspapers or in the international media in the context of Sudan trying to clean up its image are, are, are really a farce. It's a loosening of controls you know, for a period of time that's, that then is followed by waves of persecution, waves of arrests, um, extrajudicial killings, imprisonment. So at this point in time, what does that look like in the Nuba Mountains? How is the government responding? How are they trying to reassert that control in the Nubas? Right. So Pastor Hassan was making the point was that when, when the two countries separated, the first thing that the Khartoum government did, that Bashir did, was to let everybody know that he was going to enforce Sharia law. And whether or not there really were any Christians in northern Sudan was not the point. The point was, from the point of view of the government, everybody is a Muslim and everybody is subject to Sharia law. And the first thing they did was in southern Kordofan was to start bombing those people. After a, a farcical election process in 2011, they massacred more than 4,000 people based on their religion, their race, and their political affiliation in the Nuba Mountains, in the capital, pulling them out of their homes, pulling them out of the UN mission in Sudan compound. And that was the beginning of the war in the Nuba Mountains. Simultaneous with that, the government in Khartoum expelled all of the NGOs from uh, the Nuba Mountains, criminalizing all humanitarian ac activities. So we and VOM operate as criminals in the Nuba Mountains. Uh, the delivery of medicine, the provision of, of water, the pr provision of relief, any type of humanitarian work there that is not with the explicit approval of the Khartoum government is criminal activity. Even though the number of bombs that are dropped this week or this month or the amount of fighting or people killed with bullets is significant, but as many people are dying as a result of a humanitarian blockade, which has criminalized all uh, humanitarian activity, and there's just a small number of groups, left than, less than the number of fingers I have on my left hand, that have chosen to defy that and try to work alongside the Nuba people as they seek to just live and have a normal life. So we've talked a little bit about the political situation and what's going on and the, the war, really, that continues. Let's talk about the spiritual situation, because I think there's, there's good news on the spiritual front. How is the church among the Nuba people responding? Well, as mentioned, you know, this, this current war started in 2011. I think it's been something that has really strengthened the church. And it's something that has created all kinds of gospel opportunities among the Muslim community. So the, the social, cultural, religious dynamics are changing all the time. And these are really courageous people. It's been great because unlike other places and other Muslim countries where if you become a believer, immediately you've got to go into hiding 
because you might be killed by your own family or members of a community, let alone institutions of the government. In the Nuba Mountains, space has been created for believers to assemble and to worship and to disciple and to evangelize. And they're going out house to house among their neighbors and winning people to Christ. There's no greater evangelist than a radical Muslim government pounding you if you're a nominal Muslim and um, happening to have believers who are on fire for Christ who are helping to feed you, clothe you, provide you with medicine, and teach you a completely different way. The Khartoum government, totally against their will, are serving as missionaries. The, the more they try to destroy the church, the more it emboldens believers, the more it drives their own people towards the cross. In so many ways, it's easy in the Nuba Mountains. It's, it's one of the easiest places in Sudan to do Christian ministry, without a doubt. Brad, tell me some stories of the way the Nuban people are living out their faith. Um, one of the brothers that is one of the leaders in uh, networking with several thousand pastors from five different denominations in the Nuba Mountains is Morris. And um, Morris, his tribe, represent one of the largest people groups in the Nuba Mountains that have scripture. And uh, we've had some wonderful times together in fellowship, and VOM has shared some other stories about Morris, and he's just a wonderful brother, and he's courageous, and he's someone who came from a Muslim background and came to Christ as a child. And um, there's one story that I'd really like to share with you, which just brought home what it means to, to live your life as a Christian anywhere in the world, not just the Nuba Mountains. So Morris as a great and effective leader, has a lot of people that love him, and he's got a lot of people that are jealous of him and hate him. And he had um, a history with one of his neighbors who is a Muslim. You know, they, they had a lot of problems. There was a lot of jealousy. And one day he came home and he found out that his daughter, uh, and Morris has seven children, that his daughter, who is 18, um, had been attacked by his neighbor's son. She was physically assaulted and, you know, blackened and bloodied and bruised, and so much so that it became a, a case, and there they have the local court, the local chiefs, and they had a, a case there, and this man and his son were brought to court and found guilty of assault, and the charge was a certain amount of uh, Sudanese pounds, and of course nobody has money there, and the equivalent in U.S. dollars was something like $20, but for those people, that might have been $20,000. And if he wasn't going to pay the fine, he was going to be in jail indefinitely until the fine was paid. And Morris, instead of, uh, you know, delighting in the judgment against his neighbor, saw an opportunity for the gospel. And he talked to his daughter and he said, you know, we have this opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ. I can pay that fine if you'll let me. And so his daughter agreed, and they paid the fine. And uh, if that were the end of the story, that would be enough. But uh, some months later, when we were doing a conference together in uh, his county in Moraland, he came home after a long, long day. And, uh, you know, it's about an hour distance traveling from the conference to his home. And he got home, and his wife, Kabina, greeted him, and she was distressed and upset. And he knew something was wrong. 
She said, well, our little lamb that was just born was killed, and somebody killed it and threw it in the ditch right on the border with our property with that guy. And Morris just said, oh, I'm so tired. I, I got to go to bed. Just don't tell me the story right now. I don't want to know. I mean, I, I've had enough with this guy. I'm exhausted. Let me sleep. So he tried to go to bed. He couldn't sleep. <laughs> so he started praying. He said, God, don't let the other guy sleep. <laughs> let me go to bed. <laughs> I'm tired. Please. Don't let him sleep until he comes and confesses and repents. Morris went to sleep, and he slept well. And uh, he woke up the next morning. Guess what? There is his neighbor, the one who he paid the ransom for, who is the father of the son who abused his daughter. And he says, I couldn't sleep last night at all. I did something really bad. And I think maybe God was keeping me from sleeping until I came and confessed to you what I did. And Morris says, I know. Tell me what happened. So the man confessed, and Morris's response was, you know, I, I, I know you have a problem with me. I understand in a fit of rage how someone might do something like this, but why didn't you just bring this animal and we could have eaten it together? Wow. And we don't know the end of that story. But it, you got to think every one of those experiences was a seed planted into this man's family and into his uh, life of— God is working on his yep. neighbor. There's no question about it. And, you know, from one point of view, uh, the story of Morris's faithfulness and his example of loving his enemies, the way he's discipled his yeah. kids, that's enough of the story. But you know God is also working in that man's life and in his family's life and in the whole community. Everybody's watching. There are no secrets. They don't have the news and the internet and all this other kind of stuff to distract them every there. Everybody is just paying attention to everybody else's business. And so the opportunity for the spread of the gospel in a place like the Nuba Mountains is huge. Well, and you can imagine when Morris goes to essentially bail the guy who attacked his daughter out of jail, pays the fine, brings him home. Everybody in the whole community is going to hear that story. Probably everybody in the Nuba Mountains knows that story. Wow. So you guys are the last ones to hear it. <laughs> but it's a true story. And and the gospel goes forward every time someone does that. We're talking today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with Brad Phillips. He has served in Sudan for more than 20 years. He assists VOM in helping the Christians of Sudan and South Sudan as well. As we talk about that, Brad, as we talk about what Voice of the Martyrs is doing, because some of our listeners are also donors, they help VOM with the work that we do around the world, what does that work look like in the Nuba Mountains? VOM's investment in the life of those communities there, especially church, is huge. In addition to discipleship and evangelism, which is a core of the ministry there, which involves distribution of scripture and scripture resources in indigenous languages, six different languages there, conferencing, things like that, doing other things to come alongside pastors. VOM is also making a huge investment on the humanitarian side in, in helping these communities of believers who are have been under attack 
because of their faith. And that includes medical work. We supply medicine to 180 clinics. There's three hospitals that we support that are performing as best they can all the things that a hospital would do over here without all of the equipment, without the power, without the, all the machines. And there are 180 clinics, which are primary health care units and primary health care centers. Um, VOM is also involved in providing uh, safe water. Uh, in addition to water, in addition to medicine, we have emergency relief for families that are displaced because of the persecution that's ongoing, that's happening in the Nuba Mountains. Those are, those are big areas where VOM has a big footprint in the Nuba Mountains. We're talking today with Brad Phillips. He helps VOM serve the people of Sudan. As we finish up here on Voice of the Martyrs Radio, one of the things we always want to do is equip people to pray. So let's talk about the Nuba people. And first, let's talk about the church in those areas. You've talked about some of the challenges and the war and the separation and isolation for the pastors and leaders. How can we pray for the church in the Nuba Mountain region? Yeah, I think we should just continue to pray as far as the resourcing and discipling of the, especially of the leaders, because they have uh, a big desire to be fed, and we need to do our part to try to help feed them, and we need to pray that God continues to keep some safe quarters open for us to do that, and that as things get easy for them, and maybe when, they ha- when the persecution subsides, we need to pray that they remain faithful and that they remember where they came from and how they got there. Because all of us forget what God has done for us. And uh, when times are too good, a lot of times we slide. And I think just pray that God continues to open doors of fellowship in the Nuba Mountains for that community and that he continues to, to bless the harvest. Let's talk about Sudan as a whole, and I know one of the things you mentioned is a lot of the Christian people, even up into Khartoum, are Nuba peoples. How do we pray for the church in the rest of Sudan? Yeah, you know, um, persecution takes different forms, and the persecution in other parts of Sudan, for example, in the cities like Khartoum and Omdurman and uh, Port Sudan and those places is different. It looks different than the persecution that you have in, in the Nuba Mountains. The advantage that the Nuba Mountains people have is that they have some sort of semi-autonomous government and some safe space created by that. The disadvantage that, that they have is that they've been isolated, they're being bombed, they're being targeted, they're being attacked. The advantage that they have in Khartoum is what seems and looks like to the world as peace. The disadvantage that they have is they live in a police state. So the government allows churches to operate, and then it decides to destroy and bulldoze a church. The government allows people to assemble and congregate and do things, and then they tighten the leash and they arrest people within the group to intimidate. So it is a Islamo-fascist totalitarian state. And the believers outside of the Nuba Mountains especially need prayer for courage, for their witness. They especially need prayer for, for courage as they make decisions about how they're going to live and remain faithful in that very, very difficult environment. I would also encourage you, as you are praying for the nation of Sudan, pray for the persecutors. Pray for the seeds that are being planted 
by people like Morris forgiving the person who attacked his daughter, forgiving his neighbor. Those are seeds that are being planted. So pray for the persecutors that those seeds will take root and produce fruit in their lives as well. Brad, it's always fun to have the chance to converse, to catch up on what's happening in Sudan. Thank you for your ministry. Thank you for your willingness to go and be our hands and feet serving the body of Christ there. Uh, And thanks for being our guest on Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Thank you, Todd. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. As always, if you're just joining us, you can go to vomradio.net to hear this entire conversation again, as well as share it with other Christians who will help you to pray for the nation of Sudan. I hope you'll be back with us next week as we hear from Brother Aaron. He just returned from a trip to Central Asia, and we are going to hear about his visit there, some of the Christians that he met, how VOM is assisting the church there. So don't forget to come back and join us next week right here on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network.